Hi, I'm Hope. Welcome to the African Pre-Seed Podcast. As always, if you're a founder or investor keen on learning more about the African tech ecosystem, we've got you covered. And joining me for this episode is Andile. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Thanks, Hope. Uh, glad to be here. Hi to our listeners. In today's episode, we'll be delving into the decisions that founders might make in the early lives of their businesses that could shape the chances of success in their future. And again, what, what's top of mind for investors operating within, in this case, the UK ecosystem that might be applicable to the African scene. So we're talking insights that African founders can apply to their own context. And of course, this is because of our special guest today. And with that context said, I'm very, very excited to welcome Ibele Okobi onto the African Pre-Seed Podcast. Ibele is a venture partner at London-based VC firm Ada Ventures, a growth and impact advisor at Loom, the former public policy director for Africa, Middle East, and Turkey at Facebook, and the former global head and senior legal director of human rights at Yahoo. So, Quite yeah. a mouthful. <laughs> so she hasn't been doing much with her career at all, it seems. Very <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Uh, uh, welcome to the African Pre-Seed Podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. How are you doing? You, I, I believe your voice is taking a bit of a beating. Yeah, you know, I have a summer cold, which makes no sense whatsoever. Oh. And then when you add shouting at your kids, kids on top <laughs> um, <laughs> those kids will get you they yeah do. but listen such a blessing listen hopefully we'll put you in a good mood and perhaps soothe your voice ease you into this podcast gently with our icebreaker this this morning okay we love an icebreaker right. yeah so Ipele, you know just that intro alone implies that you have such deep expertise in a number of different areas that our founders will find fascinating but as andile said we love to ease into things mm -hmm. by playing a little game called that's right hope and i are going to go through five topics or themes and the moment you hear the topic we'd love to hear your hot take on it now Ibele, we're asking you for hot takes because we know <laughs> you can give a you we know you you can manufacture some of the best out there we you will ask for your hot take and we'll ask you to rate the theme between one and five with one being mm, that and five being super spot on for you okay so five being the best rating you can get okay so this is the type of thing that gets me in trouble hot takes come let's let's get it are you ready i'm ready all right cool Epele, the first one is what has made waves in the past two weeks threats <laughs> <laughs> so hot take first i don't know because i have not been on it okay so, and I have not been on it because I don't want another social media platform to waste my time and steal my energy. Okay. So, having not been on it, I can't really rate it. But if I was just going to rate it as a concept, mm -hmm. I would give it a one Ooh. because I just think that there's too much <laughs> taking away time and focus from life and meeting people in person. Okay. Well, Threads, not doing well on this, on this podcast, right? Okay, let's go with corporate CSI programs. Ibele. So a CSI, what is that? Is that like corporate social responsibility or corporate social impact? Corporate social investment, impact, responsibility, yeah. 
your thoughts on on that? It's very difficult to give it one number because I think that when well executed with clear principles that are connected to equity and to justice and that aren't just window dressing, they can be really powerful. So in that case, those would be rated a five. Ah. Too many of them, however, are one because they're all talk and no action. Okay. I think you're giving that as a genre 2.5, given, <laughs> given that review. <laughs> the average. The average. Um, the next one is the direction that your former employer is taking in terms of what do you think about the metaverse? Uh-huh. I don't know what that it is, and I don't think anyone <laughs> else does either. I don't know if any of us know. <laughs> also, Nobody you never worked at Meta, is. did you? <laughs> I did work at Meta, but I refused to call it Meta because, as I said, your mama named you Facebook. I'm going to call you Facebook. So, yeah, the Metaverse, I don't know what it is. From what I saw, there's a bunch of people with no legs. (laughs) Yeah, I don't don't know what it is. You must have been a nightmare for the PR department at Meta. <laughs> Don't send her out. It was there. not a nightmare. I was a very good colleague. I'm sure you were. I'm sure you were. Listen, uh, African tech as a genre. Oh my God. Absolutely a five. So exciting. I mean, obviously, it doesn't get nearly enough support in terms of funding, but such an exciting space. And lastly, what do you think about think tanks? I think think tanks get a bad rap. Hmm. But I think it is actually much more important now, especially in this time where everything is so fast and you're expected to have a hot take and companies are expected to move on a dime, governments as well, to have spaces that really value deep thinking that can inform action. Now, obviously, a lot of think tanks are populated by a non-diverse set of characters and often struggle with getting their deep thinking translated into action. But actually, I think that the impetus behind it, creating a space for thought, is great. So that I would rate a five. I echo that diverse thought is always superior to everything else. Rate this, rate this, rate this, rate this. Now that we have our minds all warmed up, let's just kick off with this conversation. So, Bele, you did psychology, then law, and then you later worked for a major New York law firm. What do you believe is the defining moment in your life that inspired a transition into the tech ecosystem? And in what ways might your upbringing have inspired that transition? My first job in tech was Yahoo, and I didn't enter it with the mindset that I am entering tech or I was looking for a tech job, I was specifically focused on impact. So I had been a corporate lawyer, which I had no business being. I had worked in civil society. And my entrance into Yahoo was really around a role. So it was about being able to lead the very first business for human rights program that was I looked at the intersection between tech, Yahoo's business, and human rights risk and responsibility. That for me was what brought me to tech, knowing how much power there is associated with the technology and the companies and believing extremely strongly that it needed to be that that power needed to be wielded thoughtfully. So that's what brought me into it. And also seeing a company, Yahoo at the time had seen the impact of not taking human rights into consideration and had been in a position where they caused inadvertently the imprisonment of an activist or a dissident reporter for sharing information about Tiananmen, about protest. 
So I was coming into a company that had already understood the risk and was really eager to understand the responsibility. So that's what brought me in. In terms of my upbringing, I think my upbringing is absolutely aligned with my path in the sense that I say a couple of things. One, that I am, I come from a long line of troublemakers. My grandmother <laughs> was one of the leaders of the Aba women's market women's revolt, where women in Aba in the southeast of Nigeria revolted against the colonizers who attempted to levy tax. I also, my mother, actually both my parents left Nigeria for an education. So imagine pre-internet, pre-email, leaving your home at 16, 17, to go to a completely different country to be educated, far from your family, far from your friends, and not knowing whether you're not going to see them again. Mm -hmm. The Biafran War intervened, and so they couldn't go back. And so I say, not only do I come from a long line of troublemakers, I come from a long line of people who are wanderers, people who are willing to travel to find opportunity. The other red thread through that is I have always been raised with the very strong conviction that many people sacrificed for me to be where I am, mm. that I stand on the shoulders of giants, and that because of that I owe, that we as a community, that we live for the we, so that I don't stand alone and all of us have a responsibility to give back to community. And so that's why I have always been interested in roles that are about deeper impact, that are about creating a world that that I wish to see, a world that's better for communities I care about. Where's my black glove? I need my fist in the air, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> I resonate with a lot of what you said there. And I'm just reflecting on how your upbringing has influenced your career as you've sort of grown and matured as a career person and evolved through all these different roles, you know, from law to tech, to tech again, and now, you know, venture capital. I wonder what your reflection might be on some of the tech companies you worked for who had, by the time you joined them, transitioned from being these little garage-based startups to these monster, you know, e ecosystem and, and society impacting companies. What are your reflections on what gets seeded early on that might come into full bloom when a company is really huge. Just speaking to some of the founders listening to this, to this podcast, who might not be minding the, the the origin sort of energy or culture di cultural dynamics of what they're building right now because it's small. You know, what would you say to people listening right now who don't recognize that some of those seeds can 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 sort of come to to be things you might not have even expected or taken care to ensure you you shape. I don't know if you, you get my question. Yeah, so I believe so strongly that the seeds of a company's demise and the potential for its success are always planted at the very beginning. Mm. I don't think anyone who knows, you know, very much about how companies are founded can be very surprised at both the opportunities and I guess the the impetus for the company's downfall because all of those are very early. And it's funny because whenever I meet someone, one of the questions I ask is, what is your origin story? And I think that's a cultural thing in the sense that where you come from. I mean, if you think of Yoruba praise singers, they talk about gen your generations that came before you. I don't necessarily ask people to go back, you know, who your great-great-grandfather was or who your great-great-grandmother was. But I do think that where 
a company or where a, a founders comes from shapes very much how they live, how they operate, their values, what they think are important. And I think it's so important for young founders. And when I say young, I don't necessarily mean in terms of age, I mean new founders, to be incredibly careful about what values they bring to their company, about the types of people they surround themselves with, about what the red threads that they create at the beginning of a company, because those things will absolutely shape what the company turns into. They will absolutely have a direct impact on the company's ability to be successful. Are you creating a culture that encourages dissent? Are you creating a culture that encourages curiosity? Are you creating a country culture that values principles or that requires people to operate by principles? Are you being transparent about what those principles are? All of those things are crucial. And it's not the type of thing that you can wait until later to get, because while you're waiting, you're creating it. So even if you think you're not making a decision about your company's values, you are. Not talking about the values is itself a value. So yeah, I think it's a great question. And I do think that um, founders must be much more thoughtful about the DNA, if you will, of their of what they're creating. I think one of the interesting things that you touched on was just creating a culture of dissent. And if I reflect on the African context, but even founders, right, they love to be a lot more agreeable and right. hate conflict. And right. I think it might be due to the way we are raised in Africa. I'm not really sure, but I do think that dissent is something that people are quite uncomfortable with. Off air, you spoke about what you called passionate dissent. Could you unpack what you mean by that? And in your time at Yahoo and Meta, Facebook, where did you see good examples of passionate dissent and not so good examples of passionate dissent? Yeah, so first I'll say, I do think that there may be a little bit of variability across the continent. Mm. So as a Nigerian, I would say that many of the people I grew up around with embraced conflict. I mean, my uh, husband, who's African-American, will always laugh because he says that sometimes he sees some members of my family is like, we're the type of people who if we see an argument happening, we don't drive by. We're actually like, <laughs> what is this? And then we... This looks like a good time. Um, but having said that, I do think that when we're thinking about businesses, you're right. Like there is this sense of very strict hierarchy yeah. Yeah. and there's a sense that when there's authority, you don't speak up against authority. And so then bringing it back to passionate dissent, I think not creating space for passionate dissent absolutely kills organizations. And when I say dissent, you, so first of all, no good ideas come in a vacuum. Mm. Some of the most interesting problems in the world are not problems with black and white solutions. They're problems where there's huge areas of gray. So you have to create an environment within companies, within relationships, within any organization where you not only allow or tolerate dissent, or where you encourage it, you have to have a space where people, well, first, and, and I think passion is important. And I, when I say passion, I don't mean people screaming loudly and throwing things. That's not what I mean. I mean that you want to invite people who care so much for the mission of your organization who want it to be better so much that they have strong opinions. I think if you have a kind of place where people don't care, you don't get the best. If you have the kind of place where people defer 
to someone who's older or someone who's been around longer, you don't have this polishing of ideas that's necessary. I mean, all of the metaphors you have around refining things always involve friction. Mm. If you think about diamonds, if you think about, I'm thinking about all these terrible it's purifying things, gold. If you think about fire. oil, everything that's pure or glass, oh, yeah. everything that that everything needs to be purified. You go through fire, you yeah. go through a rough and tumble, and that is necessary to get the best solutions. I had the most random thought as you just shared that analogy, those analogies. You know how chickens and, and many birds actually swallow rocks? Exactly. <laughs> to be able to digest their food. Yeah. <laughs> Hope, Hope was making a I'm face. Just like, like, that is very random. <laughs> it is random. But <laughs> I mean, very true. random I mean, and yet apt. Yeah, you know, sometimes you need to swallow the rock or bunch. <laughs> To make exactly. sure you digest the food. Okay, okay. Let me just stop while I'm ahead. You, you know. I- oh, sorry. You asked where I saw that yeah, done yeah. well. So when I was at Yahoo, the person who recruited me to Yahoo is a man named Michael Samway, who remains my favorite manager ever in life. And one thing, he's brilliant. And he had such a sense of humility in the sense that he's so smart and he, w- he didn't feel in any way diminished by anyone else's light. Mm-hmm. So he created an environment on his teams sure. where you could bring your full self, where you were completely welcome to disagree with him, sure. to come up with better ideas, to when if he said, oh, I think we should do this, to say, well, yeah, but maybe we could be make it better like this. Yep. Um, so that sense of absolute confidence in himself and not being threatened in any way by other people's light is something that has absolutely governed the way I've led every team I've ever had the privilege of leading since working with him. Actually, a few leaders come to mind as you said that. I'm grateful I'm being led by some of them even now. But right? It's a rare it's thing. A, it's, it's such a, rare a thing. privilege. It's and, a and rare also, thing. I imagine, you know, at the earliest stages of a company's life, you know, founders reference folks like Steve Jobs or, you know, the the movie renderings of folks like Mark Zuckerberg. And yeah, a lot of the time what come, you know, what people try to emulate or feel obliged to model is anything but that. Yeah. And it's funny because even when you talk about trying to model other people, that also doesn't come from a space of authenticity. So if you watch a movie or if you read a bunch of articles and think and pull together some sort of scarecrow idea of what you think a leader is, A, you have no insight into whether or not that actually worked. And B, that has nothing to do with you. And then C, often you are borrowing a sense of confidence that is quite fragile Mm. and that can be easily punctured, right? So if you're sitting up there pretending to be Steve and whoever it is is talking to you is like, you ain't Steve, your your little play is not working. So you won't get the responses because you're not being authentic. So I actually feel very, very strongly that anyone who hopes to lead has to first know themselves. They have to know themselves. You have to know your strengths. You have to know your weaknesses. And you have to be okay with being wrong. And you have to not feel as if it's your job to know everything. I think that comfort with not knowing everything gives you peace. 
So it means that you can surround yourself with people that you can say, you know, these people are smarter than me in so many ways. And so it's my job to bring out the best in them and to give them the space to shine. It's not my job to know everything. It's not my job to be in the weeds. It's not my job to be the king or the queen. It's really my job to be a servant leader. And again, I go back to authenticity, figuring out the things that you're good at and bringing in other people to do the other things and giving them the credit for it. I imagine that influences your your approach to being a VC now that you've transitioned to that, right? I, is that something you look for in founders and and or, or and, and how often are you finding it in founders who you So let me start by saying I started at Ada Ventures Three weeks ago. <laughs> so, so wait, how many checks have you written so far? Be candid. I've written nothing. And, let's, and, and then the other thing is, um, it's very much a part-time role okay. because I'm learning about the industry, and it's very much focused on impact. So Ada Ventures is an imp- is a fund that very much focuses on impact investing and on identifying founders who are solving really interesting problems and in particular focusing on underrepresented communities. Mm. So my I'm really looking at the impact side of it. And so I'm nowhere I'm I know just enough to be ignorant. <laughs> but I think just to build on Andile's question, then when you have seen the transition of first-time managers or people who are moving from having quite a strong technical skill set to then starting to lead teams, what would be your advice on how they can start to think through like baking in authenticity as a leadership style when that isn't always modeled in various corporations? The bigger, I think, the more far away from authenticity some yeah. organizations tend to be. So what advice would you give to those first, first-time leaders, founders or not, mm-hmm. um, that are starting to create and orchestrate ideas and bring them to being by leading teams? Yeah, I'll answer a little bit of the first question and then the last one. So I spent my year after Facebook, actually a year and a half, really focusing on artists and on funding artists, particularly Black artists who are using art as a liberatory practice. And one of the things I looked at very much was the artists themselves, like who were they? And I think that is very, it's analogous to founders. So you can like a company, you can like a piece of technology, but if you're funding, it comes down very much to the founder, to the leadership team. Mm -hmm. And there are very specific characteristics that I'm interested in if I'm looking at a founder, if I'm looking at a leader. Mm -hmm. And those would be the same things that I would advise founders to take care of. So one, I talk about authenticity. You can't be authentic if you don't actually know who you are. And I, it, it, it's, it is a lifetime study to figure out who you are. And it's not that I'm encouraging narcissism and not caring about anything else, but actually knowing who you are, what's your motivation? What's your driving story? What's your purpose? Everyone who's interviewed for it to be on any role in my team knows that the first question I ask is, what's your mission? What's your purpose? Why do you do what you do? Why do you think you exist? How does what you want to do in life connect with your mission and purpose? Dang, and, Abelia, you go deep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on these because that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. And, and, and you... I think if you as a founder, as a leader, aren't clear on your mission, aren't clear on your purpose, I think it's very difficult for you to lead with Mm. any kind of purpose. And it's very difficult for you to manage people in a way that brings out the best in them Mm. if you're not self-aware enough to know why you, you know, why you do what you do. So yeah, so just quickly, so that I look for 
people who know themselves. And when I know that, say, mean know themselves, I mean, yes, there's know your strengths and your weakness. I don't mean that. I mean, deeper than that, know your mission, your purpose, know your values. What do you value? What's most important to you in life? What's more most important to you in how you spend your time? What's most important to you in a job and a mission? And I think founders knowing that and founders knowing why they're doing what they're doing. And on some level, you have to not worry about whether or not your reason is a reason that's acceptable to a lot of people. Yeah. Because... That reason is going to be the reason. So even if everyone else, so for example, many people think, oh, your, I don't know, your mission or your purpose in a business should be to return a ton of money to investors or to grow as big as possible. Maybe that's not the thing that drives you. And so you have to know that, you know, because decisions that you're going to be asked to be made, the further and further you are from your mission, from your purpose, from what drives you, the unhappier you will be. And if you're unclear on that, at every fork in the road, if you don't have something that's driving your principles or values that drive you, you will become lost and you will become further and further from mission, but you won't even know what the problem is. Yeah. I just realized how how much of a how much of a first world privilege it feels like listening to that. It, you know, being able to sort of invest in that kind of exploration. And yet, ironically, it, it's probably the undoing of founders who don't take care to make that time. I, I say why, why it feels like a first world privilege. I, I, I sense that a lot of people who turn entrepreneur on the African continent, many of them do so as an extension of like a survival, mm-hmm. a sort of a, a survival, firstly, a desire to survive or a, a means to sort of prevent death at worst, but discomfort mm. at least. And and I don't know how many founders coming up in the streets today are are turning entrepreneurial on, on you know on a sense of mission or driven by a sense of mission rather than a sense of sort of pragmatic, let me get my my family in a better situation or, you know, let me not get, you know, beaten up like I, I was when I was a kid or whatever it is, you know what I mean? So I, mm-hmm. I wonder how you balance it if if you're, you're from a, a really hard world. How do you shape futures based on some of the principles you're sharing when you're from a really tough world? I don't know. And I'm absolutely open to being challenged on this. I think that it might be a bit of a pernicious, um, I don't want to say lie because I don't want to, I, th- I think it may be a misunderstanding to assume that it is only wealth that affords one the ability to be driven by purpose. Mm. I don't think that purpose is only for rich people. I don't think, and I also don't think that purpose has to be some lofty goal. I mean, purpose, I, there, I mean, as a mother, one of the deepest, most driving purposes is to create a better world for my kids. Mm. It was to is to provide for our kids. I don't think that that's base. I don't think that that's. I don't think that that by itself is not a purpose or is not. You know, I, yeah. I don't, I don't. I guess I wouldn't. I wouldn't judge that as being a bad purpose or a purpose that I need to necessarily work up to. Uh, and so when I say mission and purpose, I'm not ranking mission and purpose. I'm saying know what they are. Gotcha. So if one's mission or purpose is. I need to create a better life for my children. That's your mission and purpose, and that's what drives you. Gotcha. If your mission and purpose is I need to get out of, I need to get out of this particular 
area. I need to get out of poverty. That's a mission. That's a purpose. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't think that mission and purpose are only certain things. They're a whole variety of things. But what I'm saying is know what yours are. Gotcha. And also they don't have to stay static your whole yeah. life. No, of they course. Evolve. They can change they and they can evolve. True. So, Ipele, we've touched on a couple of different themes around authenticity, around being able to encourage dissent with people who might share similar mission and purpose that you might have so that you can be able to see whatever world you want to create come to fruition. But just to try to make it practical for somebody who's listening to this, who aligns to a lot of the principles that you've shared, but is struggling with, how do I today actually execute against this? Do you have any processes or exercises that founders can adopt in order to get the best out of diversity of thought within their businesses as they make decisions, stay true to who they are, and be agile, as we've talked about, as they continue to see the various phases of growth for their business? Yeah. Okay. So on the on the track piece... I love this question because I love hiring and I love that conversation when you're figuring out whether or not someone's the right fit. And one of the things I would say is if you're hiring, you have to create an environment where someone's comfortable enough to show you who they are. And so that requires you not to be in a state of here I am on high, you're begging for a job let me terrify you. You really have to enter into it with humility as a conversation as I want you to get to know me. I want you to get to know this team. I want you to get to know this organization. And let's both decide whether or not this is a fit. And so it requires vulnerability. So when you're interviewing, and I know, and I, as the Nigerian, uh, I know that sometimes this can be something we struggle with because there's a sense that, you know, you you are coming to me. I think opening these types of conversations with some vulnerability and with really saying, I really want to get to know who you are and I want you to get to know what this organization is. This may not be a fit and that and that will be great, but let's have the conversation where we really figure it out. And yes, I know it's a you know, it's times where people are thinking, oh, I just want any job. What I've always said to people who have interviewed is that it's much better for you in the short and long term to be in a place where you can grow and a place that aligns than a place that is, oh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take this now because I'm desperate. Mm. So in any case, I one of the things is to be really thoughtful around interview and and to ask good questions. So asking questions about mission purpose, asking questions about what people's, you know, if you've been on a job before, what were the things that helped you thrive? What were the things that didn't? How did you feel? What, what did you feel were blockers? And really within the conversation, showing that you are an environment where dissent is welcomed. Once people are on your team, also recognizing that people have different levels of comfort with dissent. So some people are perfectly happy being in a room of people who all say black, saying yellow. I'm that person. So I, I don't mind being in a room and being the only person saying yellow. But for some people, you may need to go one-on-one. -on -one. So if you're a leader, how can you architect conversations where you're figuring, where you're going to people sometimes one-on-one, -on -one, where you are as a leader, sometimes not saying, so not starting a conversation by saying, hey, we're going to do this. What do people think? Because then already you've tilted a conversation in one direction. Maybe presenting the problem and saying, I'd love to hear what people think. Some people don't do well in a, in a you know, talking environment where everyone's shouting out opinions. Maybe in some instances you're saying, hey, I'm also open to one-on-one -on -one feedback if you want to send me a note. I think making as 
as many avenues as possible to get input. The one thing I would also say is if there's a decision and often there are decisions you have to make as a leader, don't be weird about it. Don't pretend, oh, well, it's open to lots of feedback if you've already decided because then that makes people not trust your process. So, you know, don't ask people for feedback if you never intend to put it in. And when you've asked for feedback and when you've made a decision, be transparent about how you've made the decision. Demonstrate to people that you've listened to them, that you've said, well, I've thought about this. Thank you so much for bringing that. This is the reason we went in this direction. Then even if you go in a direction that people don't agree with, you walk them through your process. The other piece is as much as possible, delegate the ability to make decisions. There are many decisions that you have to make as a, as a senior leader, or as a CEO, or as a founder, whatever you, your title is. There are many decisions where you don't have to make. And especially if you're thinking about how you're preparing people for leadership, delegate as much as possible, give people the guidance they need to make decisions, give people input, but you have to, yeah, you have to share power. You have to be in a, you have to create organizations where you're sharing power, where you're building leaders, um, where you are not always the sort of the one choke point for decisions. Changing gears a little bit and, and just kind of taking me back to your time at Facebook, but you know, just kind of reflecting on the time when Facebook was for better and for worse, synonymous with, you know, the part of Silicon Valley that actually saw Africa as an opportunity to do business and not just sort of, you know, send aid to some degree. Mm -hmm. So thinking back to those days and how Facebook was positioned, perhaps at the time, as this kingmaker potentially for someone who might be starting an e-commerce business and if they struck the right partnership with you know, this big blue beast, they could unlock massive sort of economic and socioeconomic potential through through a partnership with Facebook. I mean, what's your sense of whether or not that was ever a real thing and whether or not, you know, founders in 2023 should be thinking about or being cautious about partnering with large third parties like a Facebook, a Google, in AWS in order to sort of hack success? Yeah, well, I'll start by saying that the fact that Facebook engaged across the continent in a way that was about how do we co-create opportunity is very much a testament to the power of equitable, diverse hiring. So because you had people like Ime Archibong, like Chukwameka, Fibo, and me, and we pushed that. So our conversations were the continent of Africa, first of all, is a continent, it's not a country. And second of all, it the conversation there is about partnering for opportunity. It is not about being a savior. It's not about rescuing anybody. It's not about charity. It's not about aid. It's about how do we amplify voices? How do we co-create opportunity, like economic opportunity? So I would just double down on how important it is that founders are thinking as they hire, as they build businesses of diversity, of equity as a superpower, as something that is connected to, A, yes, doing the right thing. And also, it is impossible to be a global company that's able to understand opportunity globally if you are not putting people in leadership who have a global outlook. So that's one. And, and that is very much the reason why 
when we approached the content, when Mark, the way Mark's trip was architected, the fact that when I was there, that we launched the Nigeria office and that it was specifically in an engineering office, they're very much connected to seeing the continent as a space of innovation and opportunity. And you're talking about just taking people back who are not familiar with the context. You're talking about Mark Zuckerberg's very first trip to Africa. Right. That caused quite a sensation. Right. Yeah. Which so I'm that didn't just happen. That wasn't just and Mark waking up one day going, hey, Africa matters. <laughs> that was not. That was Africans at Facebook making that a mission. And that was Africans in Facebook guiding the mission so that we did not show up. You know, a lot of Western companies, they show up in Africa as if they are missionaries or aid workers and not as if they are companies that are interested, first of all, showing up with humility. Second of all, understanding that there's so much innovation across the continent. So yeah, no, that's so that trip was specifically architected in the way it was because of the Africans in position of power at Facebook. So we'll we'll gloss over the fact that he tried to sell us internet.org as this amazing gift too. So that's a whole longer conversation. <laughs> and I think this goes back yeah. to, well, a couple of things. I mean, you can have people at your organization and it behooves you when they're there to listen to them. Mm. But having said that, I do think that the conversation around internet.org, many of us within said, no, this is a business conversation. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like this shouldn't, this is a growth conversation. This is not a charity conversation. Yeah, because it was, so was wasn't it like positioned as everyone deserves the internet. Therefore, thank you, Facebook, for, bring, right. <laughs> for curating that, it for Africa or whatever. That would absolutely never be, in my view, the way you, you address a, countries or continent. Now, of course, we have to acknowledge that internet access across the continent is worse than it is everywhere else in the world. Yeah. It just is. And so, yes, some and, it, and the, the extent to which countries across Africa, the extent to which commerce, the extent to which education is hampered by that is significant. The conversations around that have to be conversations that include government, that include telcos, that include technical technological solutions to it but it should never be positioned as aid and that's all i'm gonna say about that i know you haven't answered the second half of the question and i want us to get to that but you just sparked something else which i think is really important i think there are many well-meaning africa interested africa focused non-africans maybe outsiders from other parts of the world who want to be a part and genuinely mean well and even vibe and resonate with the in, in, incredible sort of entrepreneurial energy and sense of opportunity on our continent. But, you know, without the kind of care to have the right people in the room from the continent informing that narrative tend to trip up. Do you have reflections on someone listening to the show right now who might be a founder, by the way, thinking to sort of grow their, their footprint into a, an African geography or an investor maybe Ada, maybe someone else who's who's starting to think, maybe we should be extending our portfolio in, in the direction of the African continent. You know, what would you advise them in terms of kind of shaping their their sort of learning journey and their discovery journey about how to, how to do it right? Oh gosh, I have so many things. First of all, if you are building an Africa business and you refuse to hire Africans, we must ask yourself, why? Why are you shaping? I mean, for example, if you were, if you wanted to work in France or if you want to work in the U.S., would you make sure that you 
built a team entirely composed of people who, you know, one person had maybe backpacked across Colorado once, maybe 10 years ago. You know, another person had maybe dated a French woman in college. Would that be who you would ask to lead the team? You wouldn't. And so the question is why whenever we're dealing with Africa, we start having these conversations about, well, I mean, we just it's just impossible to find people who, no, it's not impossible. So as I think some deep, deep soul searching as to why you're engaging a region and not engaging a region with people from that region. I think it has to start there. And then also understanding what your motivation is. This goes to your purpose, your mission. Whenever people start talking about the continent, start talking about aid, it always makes me itchy um, because often those people don't understand the reasons why the continent or countries, first of all, they're not differentiating between countries, but why many of the countries are in the positions the countries are in. So, you know, (laughs) Without understanding trade restrictions that have been created by the West. Shout out Berlin Conference. (laughs) Right, exactly. Without understanding, for example, France and the extent to which France materially benefits from Africa and yet benefits from Africa while impoverishing countries. So if you don't know the context behind that and then you then position yourself as someone who's coming to help, a, a lot of the actions you'll take will be counterproductive because you're exacerbating a situation that you haven't taken the care to educate yourself about. But then you also just seem very disingenuous yeah. because you're coming saying, let me help when you are benefiting from policies that ensure that you are always in a position of power. Also, you'll lose a ton of money, just so you know, right? If that's what you, you care about. You absolutely will lose a ton of <laughs> that money and you'll you waste time. Yeah. And then at the end, you'll say, oh, see, this is why it's hard to do business across Africa. Absolutely. Because you've basically taken all of the wrong decisions and gone with all of the wrong people and then said, ah, see, it's, it's possible. That was a <laughs> that was a detour. Thanks for, for indulging that question. But then just back to we that question about Facebook and positioning them or any other sort of major third-party large tech player or partner potentially for founders listening, is that a good idea? How should founders think about, you know, contracting or even partnering meaningfully and profitably and safely with the likes of a Facebook, a Google, uh, any large tech corporate? And yeah, and I'm naming the Silicon Valley types just because you kind of worked for them, but I mean, this could be true for any large organization based from anywhere else in the world coming to, you know, proposition a founder here on the continent? So unfortunately, there is a history of, you know, there's a history of how certain regions of the world have engaged with the continent, right? So whether we're talking governments and or companies attached to them, and unfortunately, it has always been where those entities created deals that were very much like very much to the benefit of those entities and not to the benefit of the partners on the continent. So I do think that given that history, that anyone who's partnering any so any I would the advice I would give to every African com- country company and country actually is to look at your interests. It has always been lucrative for external entities to work with Africa. Always. The terms they've created have always been terms that have been to the detriment of people on the continent. 
And so I think that there's a real need for solidarity, for thinking strategically, for thinking long-term in any partnership, accepting shiny objects just upon the face of them has never worked. So I would just caution all founders, all organizations to think, and again, this goes back to mission and purpose. What are you trying to do? What are you trying to do in the short term and long term? If all you're interested in is quick money in the short term and you don't care about seeding the market to an entity that's not, that you know, that that's not from your country, if you don't care about a policy environment that is to the detriment of people in your country, in your community, then do what you want. But if you care about the long term, then my very strong advice is to think about that long term as you contract and to not assume that you don't have power in a conversation and in a negotiation and to certainly not give away power when you don't have to. Sadly, with that, all good things must come to an end. Ipele, thank you so much for joining us today on the African Pre-Seed podcast and for sharing with us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate you joining us, fam. We'll end this episode by asking you, you know, how do you encourage passionate dissent? Is there something you picked up from this episode that has inspired you or perhaps resonates with a practice you already have in, in your venture and in your team? to leverage the best that diversity can can offer well if that is the case we'd love to hear about it please send your thoughts to hello at africanpreseed.com and uh, feel free to share with us and the rest of the world on social media including on facebook <laughs> using the hashtag african Pre-Seed podcast and we'll be looking out for your comments there that's it for now see you all next time cheers everyone